0: Welcome to Cyber and Security, brought to you by eLearn Security. I'm Matt Kreischer, Content Specialist at eLearn Security. And as always, I'm joined by Neil Bridges and Jeff Goals. Neil is a cybersecurity veteran, both literally and figuratively. He started in Cyber Command at at the US Air Force and has since worked with Fortune 100 companies and Price Waterhouse Cooper. He is currently consulting through his company, Root Access Protection. Uh, Jeff is a named account manager with VMware Carbon Black. He has more than 30 years experience in the technology and cybersecurity sectors, helping clients around the world achieve first-class security protocols. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thank you. Now, obviously, the thing on everybody's mind right now in all of 2020 is the coronavirus pandemic. Um, For us... The pandemic has placed particular strain on cybersecurity teams. Um, I don't think many people were prepared for a shift from majority office setting to the work from home situation we're currently finding ourselves in. And, you know, a lot of CTOs, CISOs and CIOs have struggled to keep their network from s- secure from this huge new threat ans- uh, landscape. So uh, we're, this is kind of what we're going to be talking about today. So I wanted to start. Uh, Specifically with routers, and then move on to mobile application fraud and the new Zoom zero day threat. And then we'll kind of talk a little bit about cybersecurity and emergency management and kind of where that their place in that. So, to start with home routers. Uh, A new study from Germany's FKIE Institute found that consumer-grade routers are riddled with security vulnerabilities. The organization didn't pick on one manufacturer. They examined 127 routers across seven vendors and found that the best device had at least 21 security vulnerabilities critical vulnerabilities. Uh, On top of that, Info Security Magazine said that at least 90% of the routers used Linux, but over a third of them used version 2.6.36 of the Linux kernel, which is from 2011. So I'm going to start with Neil. Neil, what do you tell security personnel when they're looking at the level of their insecurity that they're seeing from these consumer-grade routers and, and telling them how to deal with that?
1: I, I I love and I hate this conversation, right? Because it's you know, if you if you've ever been to so so for for those listening right, who who may have been part of the the cybersecurity committee for a while right, the annual uh, hacker conferences that happen in uh, uh in in Vegas prior to COVID right, uh, you know DefCon and Black Hat right, the whole the whole reason that they've got like the 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 hardware hacking village and in, in in DefCon and, and some of the stuff that we've got going on and whatnot, um is is because we've come to find out that manufacturers have, um you know they they've they've ignored simple cybersecurity things in consumer products um, at the expense of trying to get things quick to market, you know, for the consumer, there's there's it's cheap manufacturing lines, it's it's rapid, uh, rapid work to production, no quality controls, and definitely cybersecurity is the least important thing when it comes to that type of stuff. And, and this is what happens is, and, and I've seen, you know, we, we can start with routers, right, but you can move this over to, you know, ring doorbells, you can move this over to, you know, the, 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 the Nest cams or the, you uh, um, Uh, any of the other webcams that you got to to the nanny cams or whatever the case is that we've seen for, for a number of years. And, and that's what happens when, you know, an organization thinks that, you know, security through obscurity is the right way to do their manufacturing process, especially in consumer goods. And then this goes back to a conversation we had weeks ago where, you know, the, the consumer is, is, you know, not knowledgeable enough to be able to challenge organizations to, to understand why those security vulnerabilities exist. And so it's, you know, We've seen real instances like the Mirai botnet and and other types of of cases where, you know these these internet accessible consumer devices, you know they're 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 ripe with vulnerabilities that allow hackers to take over them, and well, and there's little see, to no we've protection seen that
2: for years though with BYOD and like every initiative it doesn't have to be the COVID work from home thing, Mm-mm. you know you've got uh, you know. 15 years ago, you started having more uh, of the bring your own device and, oh, we could save so much money, we could do all these things and uh, give choice and freedom to our employees and they'll love us even more for it. But um, man, it uh, creates so many downstream issues. And the, I, I think this work from home is even more so uh, a security issue than the BYOD that we were talking, you know, 15, 20 years ago.
1: It's... it's <clears throat> So, so I, I think you know, and, we'll, and and I think when we talk, you know, this may end up becoming a theme as well, right? But you know, hackers pay attention to the things that everybody is using. Now, everybody is working from home, and so now home routers or home BYOD or home devices or whatever the case is get a lot of attention because now hackers see that that's the boundary of the corporate network now more so than the data center that you have and so now that you've got more attackers looking at that as a boundary then of course you're going to see more attacks and more
2: vulnerabilities to it so you know. Don't you don't you think this is a little bit different, um, in that like the BYOD stuff, right? That was that was a decision. It was like uh, driven around uh, financial concerns, uh, choice, etc. This COVID work from home, it really wasn't a decision. Your decision was we either choose to not connect our employees and make them totally unproductive, or we give them complete freedom to connect and open the door from a security perspective and i would actually argue that no one even added the last part of that sentence
1: no i think covid caught everybody off guard and i think covid forced everybody to work from home and and we could speak ad nauseum about just like how everybody has realized just how disastrous their resiliency and dr plans and 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 i could tell some horrible stories about some things that i've seen just in the last four months over this whole thing um but a home router, right, or any other, because you know, the article or the, the story may be about home routers specifically, which, you know, is, is a consumer good. You know, it, it, it exists with consumer goods, technology consumer goods that don't have the same security baseline standards and security expectations coming out of this consumer that regulators have for a company when it comes out of, um, you know, the, the security standards in their organization. A, a, a home router And a Fortinet or FortiGate firewall that's sitting at the boundary in a data center, right, they perform the same function. And so why do we expect a FortiGate router to have baseline configurations and and standard practices and implementations and policies and and a minimum security standard, but we don't necessarily expect that out of a router? You're not going to find password123 on, you know, the the, um, the JTAG controller
2: of a FortiGate firewall, but you're sure going to find it on Linksys router. Yeah. It, even if you can change the password, right. This study found that uh, uh, a lot of them, you couldn't even change the password. Yeah. Yeah. So, so but I, I, I would also say that there's almost no tolerance from a consumer perspective to go mm-hmm. in and change the configuration of the router because 99% of people don't know that you can, first of all, let alone how to get in and. You know, change some of those settings.
1: Oh, it wasn't until oh, it wasn't until Cisco bought Linksys that Linksys changed the default uh, um, Wi-Fi password from from you know Linksys Linksys to you know a random numerator. That didn't happen until Cisco bought them. Yeah. Well,
0: so let me ask you this: individual consumers don't really have much collective action when it comes to wanting more secure routers, but it does seem like especially since many businesses are thinking about moving to an all work from home setting that enterprise enterprises do have that influence over different companies that make these consumer grade routers. I'm wondering, do you, can you see a future where enterprises are going back to these consumer router companies and saying, Hey, you need to make these more secure, or we're putting them on a blacklist of routers at our, organizations can't or employees can't have. Uh, I don't no, see that as being no, absolutely
2: a, not in the realm of possibility
0: no but wouldn't that not be wouldn't that be beneficial for a lot of companies to make sure that they're using their influence to have better routers to have a more secure threat landscape when they're moving to a more work from home environment
1: multi-factor authentication is beneficial but you know how many organizations drag their feet on that I mean it's 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 a <clears throat> it's you know, when you talk about small to medium businesses versus enterprises, right? You know, there are more small to medium businesses, you know, out there that are utilizing consumer grade electronics. Um, you know, a small to medium business, and, and and you know, my sister owns a veterinary practice, right? You know, she can pay an MSP a ridiculous amount of money to um uh, to to bring in you know, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, a high grade enterprise grade piece of equipment, or she can go down to to Best Buy and buy a Linksys router. And both of those satisfy her veterinary practices needs. And she's not going to demand that, you know, that, that Cisco make their Linksys routers more enterprise grade. She's, she just, you know, it doesn't, that's not even a, a consumer grade question. And I don't think that you'll ever find a case where, you know, you know, insert fortune 100 company here, uh, tells uh you know tells a, a router company like like netgear links says hey make your routers more enterprise grade or we're going to have our employees not buy them to put there in their house that's just not a that, that's not a corporate standard that's going to get pushed down and I don't care what level of, of work from home we get to from
2: COVID. Uh, Jeff, I don't know if you want to argue with me yeah, on that one. Well, <laughs> I mean, you, you, you start to take a look at uh, uh, home users and their buying patterns, right? They're probably going to spend the least amount of money to get the highest amount of bandwidth and connections to their home. Oftentimes, that means, hey, I call up AT or Verizon or whoever your ISP is, and says, "Hey, I want fiber to the house. Cool, that's I got a hundred uh, uh, meg coming down, and um, they're going to put in a Wi Fi router for me. And I tell them what I want my password to be, and I'm good to go. That that is it. That is all they're doing." And their kids are running Xbox, their kids are doing streaming, YouTube, etc. And that's all they've ever cared about Wi-Fi in their home is how to connect and do it so that everything always works as much as possible. And as soon as you layer on an added level of security to that, it makes your... Samsung television more difficult to use. It makes you, That's right. you have to That's right. you know, interface with your kids, heaven forbid, on YouTube and say, oh, my gosh, you can't get on. Sorry, maybe go outside and play. <laughs> but this is this is what makes the
1: corporate conversation so different. Right. And and I think uh, I, I think this is this is where corporations struggle, because now they've had to deal with. Oh my God! How do I get my users to connect to my VPN that I never expected to have a hundred people, hundred thousand people connect to? Oh, and by the way, are there any latent security vulnerabilities in that home that I've even got to worry about? Right? I mean, do I have yeah. a, do I have ne- peer computers, you know, that have malware on them that I've got to worry about trying to hack into this computer on a day to day basis? But that's not something that a, a corporation will ever affect. But as a CISO or as a you know, as a cybersecurity professional, you know, it's a very real thing that you have to have a conversation about. Now, all of a sudden, host-based, like we we joked, and, and Jeff, I don't know if you've encountered this with some of the, the stuff that you're working with, right? But you know, we joke about the uselessness of, of host-based firewalls and, and host-based IDSs. This is why EDR is so awesome and, you know, and, and NGAV is so awesome. But now, actually, host-based firewalling actually may actually have a play in a largely predominant work-from-home scenario because you don't want that device talking to right. anything else on the network.
2: You, you, you still need to think about security. And yeah. now uh, you, you start moving this from a, oh my gosh, uh, with COVID, we have to send everyone home and make it uh, make it still work, to, hey, this is actually working out pretty well. And oh my gosh, we could truly save a lot of money. And people seem to be happier with not having to come into the office every day. Maybe we could turn this into a hoteling arrangement and just turn this work from home thing into a major cost savings. And, you know, we've talked about this before. It's it's all the mi- almighty dollar that drives so many of our security decisions as opposed to security first and then figure out the right way to implement it and the right way to pay for it. Um, you know, it's just uh, it, it seems crazy to me that this is a backwards conversation, and security, again, is uh, uh, seemingly being one of those things that is an afterthought to the corporate decision of let's stay work from home.
1: But but I'll, I'll argue, though, that – and this gets back to something we have said before, right, is the consumer is not educated enough to put the pressure on corporations from their buying decision perspective to demand more security out of their products. And, and that's why companies like Linksys and Netgear and, you know, insert consumer goods company here is okay, allowing these vulnerabilities to exist in firewalls, these vulnerabilities to exist in cameras, et cetera, et cetera, because the consumer doesn't demand
2: it. I think there's probably going to be a market, though, that opens up because of this, and that's mm. going to be for business-grade level internet access. No, the whole, you're, you're, you're shaking your head at me, but come on. <laughs> You know, you've got uh, uh, business grade uh, uh, solutions out there for uh, internet that could have slas from a security perspective tied to them that would solve some of this I'll, that would be a I'll, I'll, take, step, that, I'll take that I'll take that bet but
1: I don't think that'll happen I think I, I think you know politics aside right I think we're I think nobody thinks that this is going to be around forever. And I think you're going to have a minority of corporations who adopt to the cultural shift change of, of, so we've talked about this outside the stream before, right? Is corporations are at a, at a cultural turning point. Like, do they accept that? Yes. All those lies you told employees for years about whether they could or could not work from home were actually indeed fantasies and lies. And you actually are sustainable and profitable by working from home. Do they admit that? Or do they force everybody back into the office, you know, once everything gets back to normal? Um, and and I think I think everybody is hoping for normalcy again, which is why you won't see you won't see that level of of and here comes Matt's favorite word innovation, right? You know, in, in, in terms of in terms of that type of technology, because I think that I, I just don't think that that's a I don't think that that's reality. Uh, I'll take that. Back. I, think,
2: I think there's going to be some surveys that come out and say, oh my gosh, employee productivity skyrocketed during COVID. And the the reality is, I think it skyrocketed because we were like, okay, I'm just sitting in the office anyway, like, let's just work.
0: Well, if you want to talk about enterprise innovation, those surveys and that research has been published for 10, 15 years now that employees are more productive when they're at home than when they have to come into the office. So it's... But But I think
2: think that sampling size wasn't something that the corporations accepted to say. Well, if we went entirely to that arena, uh, then it would you know we'd even get even more benefits. I I think if you have a survey done now that uh, that shows some of those uh, those items, uh, I think that that would be received better by the finance. People within corporations.
0: Yeah, I think that the bigger survey is the. Here's what rent looks like now that <laughs> only a quarter of your office needs to come into the. Actually, coming I mean, to work. It's not just rent. Wait, I do mean, we that's... get to have a tax write-off
2: now for a of our house? <laughs> I mean, it's, like, I, need, I need to call my accountant. <laughs> it's
1: it's it, there's a, there's a lot of f- fiscal advantages. I mean, data centers, right? I mean, if you think about corporations on a data center perspective, I mean, you can truly, truly re- If we, this is like the time to accept cloud as a normal operating procedure. Um, and this gets into a whole cloud security conversation. But, you know, if you accept a remote workforce with a predominantly cloud type of, uh, of, of infrastructure environment, oh, your, your your CapEx costs go down tremendously.
0: Well, I, I do. I love being on this conversation, but I do want to continue <laughs> on to the next subject. Or we're going to get lost in the weeds <laughs> here. And the next subject is uh, mobile application fraud. So according to RSA's fraud and risk intelligence team, consumer-facing industries are experiencing a massive spike in mobile application fraud. Now, phishing is still the preferred fraud method, but the tactics in Q1 of 2020 changed dramatically uh, with a shift away from mobile browsers in favor of mobile applications. Now, Jeff, I, I want to start with you. Do you think this trend is part of a natural ebb and flow of cybercrime, or are we witnessing a corona-related, coronavirus-related shift in tactics?
2: I think this is water always finds its way down uh, to the lowest level. And, uh, you know, whatever is easiest for hackers that minute will be leveraged by hackers. And, um, you know, I, I think right now um, phishing is – definitely on an uptick but i think a lot of that is because from a social engineering perspective which is really what fishing is um people want to help their they're, their core nature and neil yeah i would even help you right <laughs> you, you call me i would gladly come help you but i mean the, the reality it's is fired. You, you, <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you've got people who uh are stuck at home they're needing to feel like they're uh, good people doing things. And, um, all they can really do is donate. Like <laughs> they can't go out and, uh, do their normal service things. Right. Um, and, uh, so I, I think from a fishing perspective, this is just following the human nature of, uh, uh, wherever is easiest for an attacker to attack. Um, so,
1: so, so Jeff Jeff tried to Jeff tried to cover that one up a little bit, but he did agree with me on my previous point, which is that you know hackers always go towards like where, where the predominance of, you know of, of of available targets are, and and when you talk about the increase of mobile threats, you know, yeah, I think that I think it is COVID driven because you do have more folks who are. Being driven to their mobile device when it comes to to, to COVID related information, right? Um, you know, your your choices now are like, do you get up to date minute on you know you know what are the stats, what are the 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 death rates or the the infection rates across the country? What are you know some of the restrictions that are in your 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 city or your county or your state or whatever the case is? You know, you've got folks who are writing mobile apps to you know try to do contact contact tracing, you know, for for folks who have COVID, and you've got folks who to Jeff's you know, very, very minuscule point are trying to do <laughs> whatever <laughs> are trying to do, trying to do philanthropic things by, by, by doing donations and and things like that. And so, yes, I think hackers are being driven to the platform towards mobile apps more because users are using mobile apps more. And especially again, to, to stay as far away from politics as possible, but we ended up with a very highly charged political situation in the middle of all this COVID stuff with, with what, what happened, um, you know, with the, with the riots and everything else. And so as people are trying to mobilize and um and participate in that movement, you know, on both sides of it, you know, that's an increase in use of mobile, you know, devices and technology to to also further that cause. And so I, I think I think what you saw from a spike perspective is a spike in target rich environment. Um I don't think it's new. I mean you there's stats are you out there. you agree for, with me? No, that's target- not target rich said. environment. <laughs> You agreed with me first. I made that point in in point number one.
0: <laughs> Chicken I, the egg, Neil. Come on. I, I will let the listeners know that they actually do like each other. <laughs> don't it tell may anyone. I sound like it, but don't tell anyone. Well, it both it sounds like you know, even though both of you may be coming from this in a slightly different perspective, it does sound like. A lot of cybersecurity is playing a high-tech game of whack-a-mole. Is that huh. essentially what you're saying? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And I, I will, I will go on record and say I agree with Neil on this. <laughs> you know, I actually found something really interesting in this article. It says Canada was by far the most heavily targeted in phishing attacks. I'm like, why Canada? Are they more believable? Like, that was just interesting to me.
0: I honestly, I don't even have a speculation as to why that that could be the case. I wish I could, you know, sit here and pretend to be smart, but that's not. My my,
2: my dad's Canadian, so I can pick on him a little bit. (laughs) Of all the
0: things to pick out of that article, you picked out Canada. I know. (laughs) Well, before things go off the rails even further, I I want to move on to our next topic. But I also want to say, stick around to the end of this conversation because we're going to have, we're going to talk a little bit about Twitter's. Uh, cyber attack yesterday. And that should be an interesting conversation. But the the next topic is Zoom is back in security news. Uh, Last week, the teleconference company patched a zero-day vulnerability discovered by Acro Security that affected legacy Windows systems. Now, it's easy to pick on Zoom, obviously, because with an influx in popularity, it kind of gives a greater scrutiny and they really have not passed that scrutiny very well at times. Um, but what I'm wondering in a more holistic sense is how do security professionals manage the just the sheer number of new applications and their threats while st- still finding a way to sleep at night really.
1: <laughs> you 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 assume we sleep. <laughs> Neil only gets 4 hours of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I mean the the you said all of the right things there. I mean it's it's not you, Jeff Matt. Um, <laughs> um, I mean it it really is. I mean you know my take on Zoom right is is you know everybody used Zoom but nobody knew who Zoom was prior to COVID, right? And and then all of a sudden like you know Zoom became the household name because that's what everybody was used to seeing um and and then and this gets back to point number one that jeff agreed with and point number two that jeff agreed with right which is as soon as as soon as more people start adopting you know technology such as zoom hackers are going to point their lasers at them and go pew pew and you know try to you know try to you know get it get access to that as much as possible so you know i think that's that's you know statement's pretty self-sustaining but i think the You know, it's not just Zoom, right? When we were prepping this podcast, right? We were talking about Zoom. Literally just a day ago, right? There's a brand new you know, Microsoft Windows DNS vulnerability that came out, you know, where there's proof of concept code out there and, and and talking about, you know, a 17-year-old bug that could, you know, you know wreak havoc across the entire internet because now you're talking with the fundamental, you know, system on how the, the internet works. And then um, I, I think there was an SAP vulnerability that came out this week. And so you, I mean, you've literally got three vulnerabilities this week, you know, that, that can wreak havoc across the entire world. It's and- a good
2: thing companies don't ever use, you know, SAP and, uh, you know, Microsoft and...
1: Or, it's a, or, good, too, or too. it's a good thing that companies patch exactly when these vulnerabilities come out, right? I mean, I think the benefit of having like a Zoom conversation, right, is at least when Zoom becomes aware of this because they're a SaaS provider and they're in the spotlight and they realize the market share that they're gaining because of everything that's happening with COVID, then they're kind of pressured and forced to move a little bit faster in terms of, of patching these vulnerabilities versus something like a Microsoft or an SAP or something like that.
2: Um, but, but yeah, I mean... Okay so realistically Neil how how fast can an organization patch <laughs> I mean I'm serious
1: I, like I mean I mean wh- I mean what's what's the organization size like one person like how how fast do you patch the computers in
2: your house Jeff huh. versus <laughs> well uh, very uh very sporadically because I, it will just not be sporadical. I mean how about uh, answer it? Small, medium, and big. Yeah, I mean, IT. I think,
1: I think, I think small companies no- never because small companies don't have anybody who's managing their to patches. Do it. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, if you're not paying an MSP, you know, if you're if you're a company size under, you know, hundred million, we'll go with hundred million. And call that small, right? You know, you probably have one guy doing IT, and you may or may not have an MSP, and so your your patching is probably best effort you know, when you're finally not doing user accounts and network configurations, and everything else, I think your medium businesses, you know, you might be a little bit better, but I think you're, you're probably still struggling to get, you know, you know, patches done every quarter. I think if, I mean, of all the fortune, you know, companies that I've worked at or, or been at, I mean, I think you, you struggle to get criticals patched in a, in a three month time period, let alone, you know, you know, mediums or lows,
2: I, I it, patching is, Patching right, is but, is. The so I, had case a, for... I had a reason for asking you that question, though. Like, here's, here's my hidden agenda for this, you. Thought this to be good, right? It, it takes forever to patch, so you know. It, it says in the article that uh, I forget who even did the uh, uh, the uncovering of this, but they notified Zoom at the same time they put it public. Mm, it was like, accuracy. Is there is there a responsibility by these people who are finding these vulnerabilities to at least give a little bit of a head start? So, 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 so. well, no,
1: responsible disclosures had a rough, you know, rough life. They've had a (laughs) really rough life. Right. I mean, and, and, and it's responsible disclosure now is when it was responsible disclosure in the past, now it's coordinated disclosure. Now we're giving it bug bounty names. I mean, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's horror stories out there on the internet, you know, of folks who have tried to submit vulnerabilities to Microsoft. Microsoft doesn't acknowledge them and therefore doesn't pay them the bounties, even though Microsoft has a very well-established bug bounty program. Um, and then Microsoft just ends up releasing a patch form. And then those researchers and bug bounty hunters um, never get paid for the research that they've done. And so as a result, they get very, very frustrated with that process and ultimately end up just dismissing the entire you know responsible disclosure process and, and publishing those vulnerabilities public. So I think that there's a, I think what you're talking about is the cultural acceptance of you know, the fact that you're a, you know, multi-hundred billion dollar organization that can't find a 100% of the vulnerabilities and can't accept the fact that some researcher sitting in his mom's basement in New Jersey, you know, can, you know, can find a vulnerability that leads to the entire compromise of of everything you've ever built and and, and written.
2: You've got to pay this guy. I want to know how many researchers are actually sitting in their mom's basement in New Jersey.
1: We, can we can we get some comments on the stream if you're a if you're a hacker sitting in your mom's basement in new jersey <laughs> we're going to do a poll to see how many exist out there but but i think I, I think you know to your original question patching is one thing it's completely different than utilizing an entire hacker community to help you find vulnerabilities you know when zoom blew up in march you know and some of the first You know like zoom bombing things were going on and whatnot i went out and looked for the zoom bug bounty you know program and it didn't exist and so that tells you right there that they knew that they were right in hacker spotlight but didn't have the responsibility to come out there and say we want the entire community to find everything that's wrong with us and report it to it we're going to pay you you know five ten fifty you know hundred thousand dollars whatever the case is you know so they took the profits they grew up and blew big as a company but didn't rely on the entire. But they community. didn't
2: reinsert that money back exactly. into R and D and protection exactly. and security. Yeah. Exactly. And
1: so, so you're you're,
2: so you're basically saying they've gotten what they deserve.
1: Not in so many words, but but you know, I think I think that's what happens when you when you don't take advantage of you know the the culture of folks who genuinely want to contribute good things in this space.
0: So let's, you know, my question is kind of about. A productive way moving forward. So, say you're a CISO or a CIO at a, a company like Zoom that is concerned with security vulnerabilities, is the ethical way of moving through these issues to open up these bug bounty programs to allow outside sources who who actually want to help, who are either financially or puzzle motivated, to help you find these in, these vulnerabilities.
1: I, I think I think you have to ask yourself, right? You know, whether you like it or not you have you know you, you you have white hat hackers and you have black hat hackers who which side would you rather be on right? And, and there are a lot of really smart folks out there and there are a lot of really smart folks that come up on a day- to- day basis and, and, and which side of the line do you want to be on because there's going to be times where somebody's going to find something and you have to ask you, you as a as a company as a business decision, if I find a bug, and it allows me access to the Twitter admin, you know, panel, you know, that, that's not the case for Twitter, for instance, right? Or it, it allows me access to, to every Zoom meeting, you know, that exists out there, you know, free and clear. You, you need to ask yourself as a company, what ethics do you want to instill on that person that found that vulnerability? Do you want them to say, well, Zoom doesn't care about it, so I'm going to go sell it to a cyber criminal who can go make, you know, a lot of money and therefore I'll make a lot of money? Or do you want to give it over to Zoom? Because it's the right thing to do. And so I think as a company, you have to decide which value you're going to instill on the hacker community.
0: Well, it's also not about value. It's it's also about looking at the costs past the short term. Yes, you're going to be paying $10,000, 15000 to a bug bounty program when they find these vulnerabilities. But the flip side of that is you're not going to end up in the news for these kind, of, these kind of issues, and you're not going to be in a position where Google and Microsoft are now coming after you in competition because they see, you know, oh, we can enter this say- space and we can do it more securely.
1: That, that's actually a very good point because as soon as, a, like, when, when Zoom popped off in March, um, you know, when at, when a lot of the vulnerability stuff started to come out about Zoom around April May time period, Microsoft released their commercial for Teams and the tagline at the end of Teams was specifically about security. Um, you know, so I think it, it, it. I think you make a very very good point that your marketing coming out of you right is, you know, from a competitive advantage perspective, you know, you, you've lost the competition because you've chosen not to go that route.
0: Well, I want to move on to kind of. Bring everything under the coronavirus umbrella, and so uh, John Breath and Corey Douglas wrote what I kind of consider a provocative article on cybersecurity's place in emergency management, when emergency management plans are are used by businesses and governments when natural disasters or global pandemics strike. Um, to quote Breath and Douglas. Failing to plan for cybersecurity threats as part of emergency management procedures is detrimental to national security. Despite the increasing occurrence and scope of cyber attacks, general emergency management remains woefully oblivious to this growing threat. I'd argue also that it is a a mission critical is mission critical for businesses as well as national security. So how do the two of you kind of see cybersecurity's role in emergency management? Do you see cybersecurity in emergency management during, you know, the next pandemic or even just the next big hurricane or earthquake that hits the United States. Uh,
2: Personally, I I think it needs to be in there. Um, You know, the federal government has always been uh, building things before a a lot of people have said, Hey, we absolutely need this. Right. Um, You know, and I'm a little surprised that uh, uh, this is finally starting to bubble up from the population of we need better security we need the government to uh, to build this it's usually the other way around the uh, you know government is uh, eager to build something that they believe is beneficial for the country and uh, a lot of the country is dragged kicking and screaming saying ah we don't need that what are you talking about you're you're overthinking this um, but I think this is long overdue personally I-
1: I don't know. I guess I, I, I this is where cynical, cynical Neil really kind of comes out, right? Because
2: <laughs> cynical Neil was already out, by the way.
1: <laughs> Look, I think I think in, in in when when Hurricane, you know, X comes through, you know, your cyber resiliency is the furthest thing from your mind. And I think on the on the disaster recovery front, right, is, you know, uh, you know, real disasters, right. Most people aren't thinking about their infrastructure. They're, you know, this is, this is, you know, people go back to, to sat phones and, and, and MR sat dishes and things like that to, to provide communication during, during times like that. I mean, I think as a, as a corporation, right. And, and I've, um, I was part of an organization when, when Hurricane Maria came through, you know, and, uh, um, leveled one of our, um, um, you know manufacturing uh you know locations in 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 Puerto Rico and um um you know as as a part of that like you know literally even though we had you know manufacturing disaster recovery plans IT and cybersecurity that's when we realized that they weren't part of natural disaster recovery plans um and and it it really kind of had like a you know a pop moment where we were like well well how did we miss that one in 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 the planning process and and so even even as you build those out, you know. I don't think anybody's thinking about IT and 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 um uh and, and cyber and those types of physical disaster, you know, recovery processes.
2: So I I would totally agree um, with that piece of it. I think there's some uh, some really unfortunate, uh, um, you know, legacy decision making going on here of. We see, just just like your time in the military, Neil, Cyber Command was built out of this need that uh, everyone knew that these digital attacks were going on and you needed to kind of get ahead of it. Um, And so it totally made sense to to attack it that way. Uh, Right now we're dealing with... uh, Uh, you know, we don't see huge issues in local government from a cyber perspective, unless they've already been hacked. Um, but, uh, you know, none of my tax dollars are going to cyber. Like Mm -hmm. I look at my tax bill and I see, you know, the park district and schools and education and, you know, these are all good things. And I'm not, you know, if you're on the uh, the local board, I'm not asking for higher property taxes, but I am uh, clearly thinking that we need to at least think about it. And a lot of these things for readiness are free. You just you've got to think about it ahead of time. But but the
1: problem is is that in a natural disaster, and I see you want to jump in there, Matt. You know, the part the hard part about a natural disaster, right, is that people have equated cyber to Facebook. Right. If, if I'm rushing to put cyber as part of my disaster recovery plans, it's so that, you know, the people can get on Facebook a lot faster. Nobody has identified. I shouldn't say nobody. That's a, that's an unfair assessment. Very few people have appropriately identified during their business resiliency and disaster recovery processes the role that cyber plays in the rapid recovery during you know, those types of physical incidents. And so as a result of that, most businesses don't understand enough about cyber to appropriately prioritize it in
0: that planning process. Well, so let me ask this, Neil. Are you cynical about businesses adopting emergency management or are you cynical about the need for cybersecurity and emergency management? And the reason I ask is because with firsthand experience, it should seem like that AHO moment should lead to, hey, I actually think that's that businesses need cybersecurity man in, in their emergency management procedures.
1: I definitely think businesses need cybersecurity in their emergency management procedures. But I think that the first place is changing the conversation to make sure that, um, you know, you understand the role that cyber plays in that recovery process. Sure. Um, it's not just about getting your folks access to Facebook or making sure that they can pass those memes around the office via their email um you know it's you know it's it's you know when you're at your weakest right that's when attackers attack and you know you know if you if you don't understand how your rapid recovery operations for getting communications to that site of work and then how you're going to protect those then you know you know you're, you're just not thinking about it the right way
0: well I don't want to end on a, a completely depressing note. and So let's move on to something that's not coronavirus related. And that was last night's strange Twitter attack and even stranger response. And, and I know that Neil, you've done some research into this last night, but essentially top accounts across politics, celebrity and sports were all attacked and it posted tweets asking for Bitcoin donations and saying that the people who donated would have their Bitcoins doubled. Yes. Uh, as a response, Twitter essentially took away the tweeting rights of everybody that had a blue check mark. That's right. And so, Neil, I'm wondering what it was like on your end watching this in real time because you were watching it from a cybersecurity perspective while I was on Twitter watching the hilarious responses from everybody that did not have a blue check mark
1: you were you were memeing is what you're saying exactly
0: (laughs) i am a millennial okay
1: no i mean and and just just for people who are listening right that 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 attack if you will netted netted those attackers about a hundred thousand dollars in in about two hours worth of work which i gotta say that's a that's a pretty good roi right there um you know i i think um and Matt, I don't know if we have the capability to do this on on you know the podcast or on the uh, on on YouTube when we post this, but you know I think that Tech Crunch article that I passed you is is probably the best explanation of this. And um you know just just for everybody who's listening who may not have have read it or, or read deep into it, but you know allegedly what had happened was you know, a a threat actor who had been pretty well known for, you know, selling, you know, hacked celebrity accounts, um, you know, out there on the dark net had allegedly had the account of a, you know, allegedly, and again, this is unconfirmed, you know, no official statement from Twitter, you know, but, um, you know, there was, or actually I think there was an official statement for Twitter late last night, um, that, that a coordinated phishing attack had led to the compromise of a Twitter admin's, um, user account inside of twitter who happened to have access to an admin console for every twitter user across you know the the entire twitter space um that this you know this hacker had instead of doing 701 other things that he could have done with with literally all of the billions of users that are on twitter um and you, you let your imagination run wild with that one um, instead, he decided to do a, a Bitcoin scam, you know, that that, you know, lost his entire access to uh, to to, you know, the most powerful tool in the world um, and you only got him access to the entire buffet table. Oh, right. I'll have three green beans, please. Three green beans at one hundred thousand dollars. And that's it. I'm done. Because, I mean, he did. He's lost. He's got he's got no access to Twitter anymore. I mean, if there's any hackers listening to this podcast right now, that's not how you do. opsec. I promise
2: <laughs> you're, you're basically saying, come on, hackers. Do better.
1: Do better. If you've got unfettered access to Twitter, don't stop at one hundred thousand dollars. Dear God, think about what you can get. Um, but, but, but I, I do. I, That's I very
2: nice. <laughs> By the way, Matt, when when you said, "Hey, Neil, are you cynical?" You should have just stopped there, <laughs> and I would have answered for him. Yes.
1: You know, I, I think I think if we were to step back and 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 you know take this away, right? Is is you know. Twitter is just like any other system, right? It's just like any other corporation. You have, you know, you know, you have systems that have critical infrastructure and sensitive information um, and and who has access to that and and what levels of protections are going in, in place to, you know, to protect that sense of level of access. I think there, again, I'll put on my cynical nail hat, Dear God, this is going to be the podcast of cynical Neil. Um, you know, we I don't think
0: it'll be the last one.
1: <laughs> I, I think we have a tendency to, to think that because Twitter is so big, they're infallible to these simple types of things like phishing emails. And I think that, that this is just a reminder that everybody is a victim of phishing.
0: That's, that's true. Well, we are over time, but, uh, that is our show for the week. Uh, for the latest episodes, subscribe to INE's, the IT Experts Network, wherever you get your podcasts, or check out eLearn Security's YouTube page for the newest episodes. Gentlemen, thank you again for the lively conversation, and uh, we will talk next week.
1: Thanks so much. Thank you.